All right, this morning we are wrapping up our backwards journey through Romans. And where do we end a backwards journey through Romans? In the middle, Romans 8, of course. We started in Romans 16, went to to 15, and then we did um, 12 and 13, and then we, oh, then we did 9 through 11, and then we went back and did 1, 2, 3, and now we're in chapter 8. The purpose of Romans seems to have been by Paul to, to help us to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we might live like him, think like him, look like him, no matter what kind of background we have. And the letter was written to Paul, to, by Paul from the city of Corinth in Greece to Italy to Rome. It appears from Romans 16 that it was delivered to Rome and the house churches of which there were about five to ten house churches in Rome, read most likely by who? Oh, crush, Phoebe. Thank you, by Andrew, who had the class in seminary. Doesn't count. Phoebe... Um, probably came and read this letter to all of these house churches. And the problem Paul addresses in Rome is that there were two groups of believers within these house churches who just couldn't get along with each other. One of them said, unless you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to follow the Torah, the Old Testament law too. You've got to do all that stuff. And the other group said, you're crazy. That's nuts. We're not doing that. We're free in Christ. And they're not living either group as an example of their theology and their faith. And these one believers who said you didn't have to do it, they kind of mocked these people, made fun of them. And they would have these all-church dinners and they would serve non-kosher food. I mean, you know, that's not such a big deal today. We're having non-kosher food today, but nobody cares. But back then, when you're a Jew, coming out of this history of Judaism, and all of the, the structure and, and the, their lives, they're like, how does faith in Christ relate to all of that? And so Paul calls those who wanted to follow the law, he calls them the weak. The Jewish believers who've come to faith and are just trying to figure out what does it mean to be Jewish and a follower of Jesus? And he calls the other group the strong. They are mostly Gentiles. There's some Jews in there. And they ridicule these these Jewish believers, and they make fun of them, and they force them to eat. Whatever isn't put in front of the table, just eat it. And the weak won't have it, and the strong won't make any accommodations. That makes for a lovely church setting, does it not? So in Romans, Paul reassures the weak, the Jewish believers, you know, you are in the stream of the election of God. You've got to begin to learn. You look back in Romans 9 through 11 at some surprising turns of history. It's okay. This is another one of those turns. It's all right. You should embrace those moves. And they were also struggling because as Jews, it was kind of their thing to resist taxation. And the Romans were, had this new tax if you moved back in after they'd kicked you out. And they're just like, I'm not going to pay. He encourages them to pay. And so as the judge in Romans, this figure in Romans 2, the weak, they need to apply faith in Christ more radically to their lives. They needed to see that the sufficiency of Christ means that they're siblings with the Gentile believers. They needed to learn that this strict Torah observance, it doesn't make you righteous. It never has, so why are you clinging to it now? Why are you making the strong do that? And the strong believers, mostly Gentiles, 
They believe in Messiah, as, as, as Jesus as the Messiah or the King, but, you know, this Old Testament law, it's not for us. They probably have an attitude in reality that despises all Jews, but especially these Jewish believers. But it's all wrapped up in this higher social status. They are Roman citizens. Come on. We are the upper class. What do you mean do this stuff? And they're taking advantage of their superior social status because they're going to put down the Torah. They're going to put down this holiness. We don't, we're, we're Romans. And so sit down and eat with us. How do you recognize a believer among the strong in Rome? They're not going to follow the Torah. And they're proud Romans, mostly. So the question and the issue we've been dealing with is how do you read Romans well? How do we really understand what this book's all about? I think to read it well, you have to read it in light of that context. You really got to know Romans 14 and 15 where Paul gets to the nub of everything. Because once you let that, those chapters shape your reading of Romans, it solves some of the interpretive problems that you come on early on. See, this text is aimed at the judge, the judgmental, weak Jewish believer who sits accusing the strong of not really following God. To read Romans well, this solution is, is has to be living your theology. You gotta listen to Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. You gotta live that way. That forms the foundation for how you can get along with each other in Romans 15 and 14 and 15. You see, Romans 1 through 8, we often read it as some abstract theology. You could just shove it in the front of any book, any of Paul's letters, shove it there, it fits. No, it has a purpose. It has a context. It's designed to shape you so that you can do Romans 12 through 16. To read Romans well, you have to read it as a pastoral letter. It's got to read it not just as, as some theological treatise. It is a church theology for a specific church in a specific time. And you've got to know those contexts to read it well. And in reality, Romans, probably Philemon as well, is more relevant for the church in the United States than any other of Paul's letters. The message is to live your theology. You gotta become like Jesus. Let him be formed in your heart. Live your life around him. And how do you see that? How do you know that you're having, that, that the scripture's having that intended impact in your life? You're at peace with your siblings. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what their background, no matter where they've come from, whether they're citizens or not. Are you at peace with your siblings, the ones you're sharing the faith with, the ones that don't look like you as much as the ones that do? And see, this message of Romans, it shouts to the American church that it's classism, it's racism, it's sexism, it's materialism. It makes you like the strong in Romans. Do we, like the strong, cling to our social status? 
Do we, like the weak, draw boundaries for behavior? This is, this is good, this is not, and you better follow the plan. Do we divide and conquer? See, the message of Romans is that the weak and the strong in our day, we both must surrender our claims to privilege and let Christ rule in our hearts. And if we're honest, as we've gone through this, who do we really think we are? We all think we're the strong. But are we? Probably not. You see, the message of Romans is that we have to surrender our claim to privilege and submit to a living faith. The last line of the book, reading Romans backwards by Scott McKnight, says this. The way of Romans, however, is a challenge that seemingly most in America would rather ignore, choosing instead to fight about abstract theology. If Romans is just abstract theology and doesn't change we, who we are at the core of our existence and the way we get along with each other, we are not reading Romans well. So this morning, we're going to end our study in Romans on a much happier note. We're going to dive into the last paragraph of Romans 8, which is probably one of the most familiar texts in the book of Romans, maybe in all of Scripture. But within the context of the letter, you can see how Paul is using these thoughts to say, get along with each other. Remember who you are and what you have in Christ. And it's a passage with which we are so familiar that we often just pass over the truths which they should startle us if we're coming to them for the first time. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? He does the, the chain in the first verses before that. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, where is it written? Some, I don't remember, some... Shoot, Psalm 44, 22, I think, one or the other, or 22, 44. Well, it's in the notes. You'll know. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If nothing separates us from Christ, why does anything separate us from each other? But we hear Paul remind us in this text that we face death all day long. We are considered to be sheep on the way to be slaughtered. And then he says what? We're more than conquerors. Sheep that conquer. Whoa, what's, well, that's unusual. Lions conquer. 
bears conquer. Buffalo, Edgar Allan Poe even spoke of the conquering worm, meaning death is going to come to us all. But sheep, sheep that conquer, seems ridiculous. But we're a bunch of helpless sheep. We're a flock, and yet we have been made conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul describes the believer as a more than a conqueror. Out of a section where we've been battling with temptation and sin and struggle, this is a passage of victory and of hope. We need this paragraph. There are five unanswerable questions in this text. It actually begins with seven questions. One's an introductory question. Two ask the same thing. So we're counting them as five questions. And they talk about things that might, we might imagine to be able to defeat us. Five things that might harm our lives. And each one is unanswerable because nothing can harm us. Five unanswerable questions. Questions one, question one, who can be against us? Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the question the people of this world want answered. If there is a God, is he really for us? When Paul says, if God be for us, he's not saying that maybe. It's really actually saying, since God is for us, you could translate it because God is for us. And there's no more fundamental truth than this in the scriptures. God is for us. He's not against us. He's not neutral toward us. God is for us. All that he is and has and does is for us, his people. And even when it looks in life like God is against us, he's not. He cannot be. Nothing can defeat us. Question two, will God hold back on us? Okay, sure he's not against us, but what if he gets tired of us? What if he goes on vacation? Everybody needs a rest. Will he hold back anything that his people need? And Paul says that if he's already given to us his son, he's not going to hold back anything else. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he's given us his son, he's given us the best thing he could ever give us. He's not going to hold anything back. You go to the jewelry store to buy a ring, and you pick out your ring, and, and, and you get the ring, and you're paying for it, and you say to the jeweler, well, can I have the box that it came in? What's he going to say? Oh, no, you can't have the box. You bought the ring. You get the box. He's given us his son. He's going to give you everything else. He won't hold back food. He won't hold back water, a job. He won't hold back answers to prayer. He's given us the greatest. Why would he hold, withhold the least? Question three. We're going to move quickly because we've got a long way to go. Who can successfully accuse us before God? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Can anybody bring a charge and make it stick? No. Satan could come into the court like they did. You know where they went last night? You know what he said? You know what, who he was with? Did you see that? God says they're justified. It doesn't matter. Because God is the one who says we are righteous. Can the law 
bring a charge against us, weak believers? No, because God justifies. Can Satan? No. Can our conscience? We let it, but can it? Is it able to succeed in doing that? No, because they've been cleansed by Christ. And no one can say, oh God, you've chosen this person, but they've disgraced you. Get rid of them. It is God who justifies. It is the judge of the universe who is on our side. Weak or strong, doesn't matter. God will not listen for the sake of his son because he is the one who justifies. Question four, who can condemn us? Verse 34, who is he that condemns us? Well, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. In this world, there's a lot of people who want to condemn us, are there not? Our friends, our loved ones, sometimes they even pass and spread those rumors. And when we fail, others rise to condemn us. We live in a world where we're condemned for our failings, but none of that condemnation can stick. Who can condemn us and make it stick? No one. Because we've got this theology here. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended. He intercedes in heaven for us. When he died, he paid the price completely, forever and ever. And when he rose, he defeated Satan once and for all. He ascended to the right hand of God. And there he's making your case before God himself. And Father, he says, Jesus, Jesus says to the Father, you know, I plead their case. He makes intercession. Question five, who can ever separate us from God's love? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for we seek for... For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us. That's how much he loves us. And we worry sometimes whether our faith is strong enough to get us to heaven. And sometimes we get scared and we say, I'm holding on, but what if I lose my grip? Well, that child is holding on to his dad's finger and it begins to slip, what does dad do? He just grabs the hand. Thank the Lord that my eternal security, my salvation is not dependent upon me holding on to God's finger. It is dependent on God holding my hand and he will not let us go. He says, what happens if there's trouble? Will that separate me from his love? No. Hardship, no. Nakedness, no. Danger, no. Sword, no. And all of those things can and have happened to the people of God. Are they ever separated from his love? No. You might face persecution. You might face trouble of the sword, nakedness, living in famine, persecuted for your faith. But Paul says this in Psalm 44, 22. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, that can happen to us. And martyrdom is a terrible reality for many or some believers. Not everybody lives like we do in the South Bay. Not everybody who loves God has a lot of money. Not everybody around the world who loves God has a really good job. Not everybody around the world who loves God could get in a car and just drive away. But even though we face death, we are conquerors. 
Trouble can take things away from the people of God, but they never take God away from us. That is why we are overwhelmingly conquerors in the worst life brings, because Jesus truly is enough. And in spite of the difficulties of life, in spite of the difficulties of learning how to treat one another as siblings, you can know for certain, you can be totally convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's holding your hand and you're secure when you die. And you can be as convinced as Paul because you know your sins are forgiven. Not only are you, a, are you justified, you are more than a conqueror, therefore you are eternally secure. And what do you say to all of this? Paul says some things about that. He comes to the end of this section and he says, okay, these are the five questions and I've dealt with them. Now let me give you my personal testimony. This is what I want you to know. And he shares his personal testimony. He ends this chapter with one great personal testimony. He says in verse 38, for I am convinced. Now these verses may seem complicated, but in reality what he's saying is, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Everything else in these verses is just amplification of that. He says, nothing is able to separate us, to violently tear us apart, to, to completely divide us. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. And then he says, nothing can separate us. Who's the us? Those who know Jesus Christ by faith. It's those who acknowledge who he is and follow him. For those who know Christ, there is no separation from the love of God. And then the question comes, Paul, are you sure about that? You're speaking in ways of personal testimony. You're speaking so confidently. How can you be so dogmatic? I mean, I'm sure there's something. Well, let's try to think of something that can separate us. And so Paul says, well, all right, let's list 10 things. 10 possibilities set forth in units of, of two each with two off by themselves. And basically he says, okay, let's go through this. This is everything in the universe, folks. And nothing of that can separate you. So there you go. So what can separate us, death or life? It begins with death, the great separator, which is rather final from where we sit today. Death cuts us off from everything we've known in this life. It will end your career, by the way. Your hobbies, your home life, everything to a screeching halt. Hebrews 2 says, those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, because death is so final. And for those who believe in Christ, it holds no fear. I am the resurrection and the life. Spoken by the person, the only person in the history who's actually risen from the dead. You can lower that temperature. It's getting a little warm in here. I'm warm. You're probably very comfortable, but I see a fan. It, we turned it up because it was really cold in here this morning. You see, that's why it's cold when you get in here in the morning because it gradually goes up. Just crank it down. No. <laughs> life, not only death can, can things, you know, things in life separate us, but they don't separate us from the love of God. Poverty can separate us from each other. You know, war, sickness, whatever, geography. You make friends and then you drift apart. That's life. But can life separate us from the love of God? No. Second thing, angels or demons. 
In the original, it says neither angels nor principalities. Angels, you know, the good ones who worship God. Principalities, those evil spirits who fell with Lucifer and, and rebelled against God. You know, this is hyperbole. I mean, angels aren't going to separate you from the love of God, okay? He's just, you know, angels, yeah, no, principalities, you know, maybe may more likely, but they can't. Angels cannot interfere with the love of God, and either can principalities. Three, present or future. We move into the realm of time, the flow of events from past to future. Is there anything in the relevance of, of time, any recorded event, any present occurrence or future possibility that could separate you from the love of God? No. Time is powerless against believers. Even the present can't separate us from God. Everything. Not divorce, not separation, not bankruptcy, no separation. Drug addiction, no separation. There's nothing you can do in the present that will separate you from the love of God. We're safe. Number four, any spiritual powers. This dunamis, this power, usually spiritually. Voodoo, black magic, that kind of stuff is really what's, what's in, the, in, in, in mind here, I think. And it covers all of this alleged and, and real spiritual power. And the point is, whatever Satan can think up, whatever his followers can concoct, they will not separate us from the love of God. Jesus is greater than all the spiritual powers of the universe. I'm sorry. My dad's in the hospital, so I'm just, someone should, I don't know. Let's not answer the phone. We don't want to go there. Okay, five, height or depth. I can turn it off this way, can't I? There we go. <laughs> Stop buzzing. Okay. Height or depth. This final match pair, Paul turns to the realm of space, to height or depth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You cannot. You go up to the highest of heavens and you will not be separated from God. You go down to the, till you're finally in hell, still not going to separate you from God. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. Then he says, number six, nor anything else. Final category. He's explained everything and exhausted everything he can think of. And he says, anything else in all creation. He means here, another of a different kind, whatever you can think of. I think that kind of covers it all. If there's even another universe that we know nothing about, Wherever it is, whatever it contains, nothing can separate us from God's love. That's it. But sometimes people say, well, what if I want to separate myself from God's love? What if I want to take myself out of the picture? What if I decide to do it? What if I decide, eh, I don't want to be a follower of Jesus anymore? Which is a good question. But what does the text say? The text says, any created thing. Are you a created thing? Last I checked, you were. Then even you cannot separate yourself from the love of God. Why? Because those whom God loves, he loves forever. Those whom he saves, he saves forever. Those whom he justifies, he justifies forever. If you have by faith come to Christ for salvation, he will never cast you out. 
and he will never allow you to cast yourself out. Paul says, I am convinced. I am persuaded. I am certain that these things are true and nothing in the universe can separate the people of God from the love of God. And what are the grounds of his persuasion? Just not a, you know, it it doesn't feel right if that could happen. It's not sentimental optimism. It's not some, oh, it's all going to be happy ever after. But it is based on the fact that God loves us and he proved that love when he sent his son to die for us. The cross proves the love of God. And Paul says, I am persuaded. I say to you, I am persuaded. Are you persuaded? Are you convinced? Can you truly say, I no longer have doubts. I know that God will keep me safe to the very end. Because if you're not certain, it's because you're looking to yourself and not to Jesus. Take a look at Jesus, a good look at Jesus, and be convinced I am persuaded, and I'm glad that I am. And you can see how this just applies then to the weak and to the strong. Why are we we having such disagreements? Because we're all fully persuaded and convinced of the same truth. What else really matters? But it comes down to, are you convinced? Have you trusted Christ? Do you believe that what he did on the cross provides justification, declaring us righteous for all time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness and for your grace that out of these small house churches comes a truth which can change our lives today that we will wrestle, do we really believe? Have we put our hope and our trust in a Savior? And because of His love for us, we can be secure. That we can know where we are, where we're headed, and we can get along with each other as we move to the future. But Father, I pray that those, if if they've never come to know Christ, today you would prick their hearts that they might listen to the Spirit, that they might believe. That's our hope and and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.